0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Our Bible reading this afternoon comes from First Peter chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. It's available in your uh, paper program or also uh, on the service app. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name is Koi. It's lovely that you're here today. And I'm going to start off by saying that I like Star Wars Episode 3.
0: Yeah. Woo! That's right.
1: Thank you, Ivana. Yeah. Right. It gets some pretty bad press around here. Um, that the, the the original trilogy, not original, the first three trilogy. Oh, sorry, sorry, the first three trilogy. But I actually think it's a good movie and one that was very highly anticipated when before it came out. Why? Because people for decades had long known of Star Wars, the big Star Wars, big bad guy, Darth Vader. You should have mostly all heard of him before. And so Episode 3 being a prequel to the original trilogy was the movie where we would see a good guy, Anakin Skywalker, become the notorious bad guy, Darth Vader. And it was awesome seeing that one moment in the movie where it happened, where he turned. The scene I'm talking about is where the young Jedi Anakin has a choice, With the secretly evil emperor, who was also his mentor, on the ground at the mercy of good guy Samuel L. Jackson. He had a choice to heed Samuel's wisdom to end the evil emperor, his evil, or the other choice was to defend his evil mentor, who promised him many, many things. It's here that he chooses to defend his evil mentor, Emperor Palpatine, helping him instead end Samuel L. Jackson and then hearing the words from his master, henceforth you shall be known as Darth Vader. Well, I scared myself a bit, right? That was such a good impression. Such an awesome scene because it's at that moment we see Anakin embrace who he'd become, pledging his allegiance to the emperor becoming the bad guy. Why I mention this famous scene is that we've been in the book of First Peter for many weeks now, and what's been key to Peter's words to the churches of Asia Minor is that they were elect exiles, a people chosen by God, yet outcasts to the world, sojourners whose home isn't here on earth, but rather home is the eternity in God's kingdom to come. And so here were a people who had found their joy in their saviour Jesus. They were a chosen race, a holy nation, Peter says, a people for God's own possession, yet a people who were rejected by men, opposed by the world, which is something that has remained and perhaps gotten worse for the 21st century Christian believer today. Author Stephen McAlpine in his book, Being the Bad Guy, says, only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many, a voice to be considered but not to be followed unquestioningly. If Christianity worked for you, fine. If it didn't work for me, also fine. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option. It's a problem. See, we live in a Western society that not only now frowns or rolls their eyes at Christianity but despises it, hates it, We're now deemed the bad guys as we live for and follow Jesus. And our passage today speaks to this issue directly as first century Christians who were rejected by their world and believers today, us here today regarded as the bad guys of society. Peter in chapter 4 in our passage is essentially telling his listeners to embrace who they are, to take up their calling, prepare for rejection, expect suffering, embrace being the bad guy. Now, it sounds strange, doesn't it, to embrace being the bad guy? But what I'm suggesting isn't an embrace like Anakin Skywalker where we're pledging our allegiance to the dark side, you know, go around destroying planets and actually be bad guys. That's not what I'm saying. But what I think Peter is telling his listeners in chapter 4, verse 1 to 11, is that now knowing that you are elect exiles, because you've been called out of darkness in and into his marvelous light, as heard in chapter 2, we are to embrace this calling and everything that comes with it. What I've found from today's passage is that Peter really paints for us a detailed picture of what it means to be an elect exile. I noticed that in the first half of the passage, Peter focuses in in on the uh, elect part, the believer's calling and what that means, while the second half, Peter homes in on the exile part. The aspect, what a believer is to expect from the world and how to live in it. This passage is like what McAlpine says: to be the best bad guy you can be, to refuse to be surprised, confused, despairing, and mad about it, and to find a way to be calm, clear-sighted, confident, and even joyful in it. So, what I've understood from our passage today is four things easily remembered with the letter E, that Peter is telling us as elect exiles to one, embrace our calling. To end old ways. Three, embody eternity and exalt the Lord. Four E's to remember. And so we begin with Peter calling believers as an elect people to embrace their calling, starting off with these words, since therefore, which makes us think to what he has just previously said. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So far, we've seen in Peter's letter the major theme of him reminding and instructing his fellow Christians of who they are in Christ, their identities in Jesus. And as such people, he has been upfront about what's bound to come in suffering. Previously in First Peter chapter 3, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Faithful suffering by the hands of unbelievers is part and parcel of being an elect exile. And, people, and Peter makes that clear. And we can be sure of this, even prepare for it because God's very own son, Jesus, suffered. See, in the previous chapter 3, Peter hit home with the words in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In Christ's suffering, who was sinless and righteous, who bore our sin on the cross, where he gave his life, that those who believe in him may have life in Jesus' suffering. He was obedient to the Father's will. It was no flash in the pan, coincidental death, but a death and resurrection that was planned and willed by God in order to redeem humanity. Jesus knew the suffering required to pay the price for sin, and he took it for our sake, took our debt and paid the price that he might bring us to God. And so to the believer, to the elect exile even though you may suffer for righteousness' sake. Peter says in chapter 3 that having a willingness to suffer for obeying God is pleasing to God, that you will be blessed for it, and that Jesus too faithfully suffered in obeying the will of the Father. So Peter, in beginning with the words, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter is calling believers to look at Jesus as their example in their suffering to take hold of who they are, that they are Christ followers who himself suffered in doing the Father's will, suffered for righteousness' sake. So embrace your calling. Believers, embrace that faithful suffering because Jesus, the true suffering servant, has already given you life at the cost of his own, redeemed you. You've been made anew, born again by his blood, Richard Wormbrand, who spent 14 years in prison as a Romanian pastor, said this, I've accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of crossbearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and of partnership with Jesus which brings gladness in tribulations, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. Peter is saying embrace this new living. Jesus, the saviour of the world, chose suffering as his vocation and he has called believers to take up their cross and follow him. Our identity is in this man, is in Christ. We suffer with him and therefore we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus, Peter says. See, Peter's charge to believers embracing their calling is that they think like Jesus, to arm themselves with the same resolve as Christ, basically to emulate him. For all that Peter has said so far, he's now at the point in his letter where he's unapologetically declaring to the believer that, guys, suffering is coming. It's part of your calling. Just like Jesus did, prepare yourselves and think like him. Embrace it. Get ready for it. And embrace it not in a way to actively pursue suffering for suffering's sake, or the opposite, and embrace it begrudgingly, like passive aggressive acceptance, but embrace your calling as to expect suffering and trustingly know that there is a purpose. And while the first century church needed to hear this, I think we need to especially hear this today. Because I think when it comes to suffering, the church today, well, in our Western context, anyway has a very has a fair bit of naivety of the mind what i mean by that is to the average australian christian we are too readily seeking the comfortable life let's be honest for most of us myself included we would much prefer healthy bodies big wallets paid off homes secure futures comfort ease acceptance all the things expected in society to the point that sadly for many christians today they would even prefer a gospel that promises these things It's a naivety of the mind. Why? Because the comfortable, people-pleasing, society-accepting life is not the gospel promise. If anything, it's the complete opposite. Theologian Karen Job says, Peter's readers face the choice of either taking the path of least resistance, going along with the values, norms, and practices acceptable and expected by their society, or being obedient to God and suffering the consequences of criticism and condemnation by the unbelieving. See, Peter is making the point, think like Jesus, who knew that obeying the Father's will was to welcome rejection, opposition, persecution, suffering. And what's key to this thinking is what Peter says in the second half of verse 1, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now I don't think Peter means here that those who faithfully suffer in the face of injustice and persecution are in fact sinless. We know that this can't be it because Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But rather, I think what Peter is saying here is that is that those who have chosen to suffer for righteousness' sake, who willingly suffer for the gospel, their willingness displays that they are done with sin. John Piper says, when you suffer for what's right, it's a sign that you have renounced sinful human desires and embraced the will of God as a higher value. See, I often meet up with another Christian bloke to talk about life, our sins, and then pray for one another. And I just love his gospel story. He was at a point in his life when he was, where he was dealing drugs and doing drugs as his norm, as his regular, regular week. But one day he felt called by God to stop doing what he was doing and follow Jesus. And so he did. He stopped the dealing, stopped doing drugs, even stopped drinking, and he lost friends from it. He lost most of his friends. They looked at him differently, gave him a hard time, but he knew it was the right thing to do as he now followed Jesus. He wanted those sins in his life to cease. This is just one of the examples of those moments where a Christian accepts the unjust suffering that comes their way because they are through with sin. They would rather choose obedience over sin, even if it means suffering. So Peter appeals here to think like Christ who suffered and died to be done with sin, not his own sin, for he had none, but suffered and died. For our sin, that we may cease from it. Romans 6 So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is what Peter means in embracing our calling. Because Christ has suffered for us to be done away with sin, we are to think like him, have his resolve, and as the end of verse 2 says, choose obedience to the will of God over the human passions of sin. In other words, faithful suffering proves that your bondage to sin has been broken, that you're living out the conviction that Christ is worth suffering for as to cease from sinning. And I love that Peter talks about ceasing of sin in his appeal because as we keep reading, we see that it seems for the the first century Christian, there was the temptation for them to go back to their past living, a pull to compromise their faith, to avoid suffering and persecution. Basically, what Peter has been saying in verse 1 and 2 is choose faithful suffering because if you don't, you will choose sin. And the sin that you draw to are the ones that you know most. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. One of mine and my uh, wife's favourite foods is uh, Korean barbecue. Just, if you haven't had Korean barbecue, it's, right, it's just, and if you haven't had it before, normally you buy meats and other dishes to eat and the restaurants would normally give you complimentary side dishes that come with it that are, uh, are uniquely Korean cuisine. Some of you may have heard something like kimchi salad. That's complimentary. I remember going to a Korean barbecue restaurant once and I, I, I always ask, are the side dishes unlimited? And the waiter said, yes. All right? Oh, boy. Every few minutes I'd ask them to refill the sides because I was just smashing them down, right? About 45 minutes later after my 10th my kimchi salad, the waiter looked at me straight in the eyes and says, No, too much, please, no more. That's enough, right? In essence, this is what Peter is saying here. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's not saying that a Christian is appointed a certain amount of sin that they can do, that X amount of sin is now sufficient, you've reached your sin quota. But it's more so he's giving a sarcastic remark, Peter, mixed with a rebuke. He's saying he's saying like this, okay, you've had your time for doing all that, you, that all that you do, living how you want to live, living freely in your human passions, but that's enough. No more. Suffer if you must, but don't sin anymore. You're a Christian now, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What it all comes down to is Peter strongly emphasizing that as an elect people, this means an end of old ways. No more living like the past. That former crowd you were part of, you're no longer with them. Once a people of the world, you're now a people of God. And I think Peter is wise in reminding his listeners of what they used to participate in because I think it helped the Christians see the most tempting things that drew them away from the obedience to the will of God, that Peter was pinpointing the most attractive outlets that turned Christians away from faithful suffering. See, when we read of the things the Gentiles do, we see that most of them involved an unrestrained desire of sex, violence, food and drink. Peter was describing the first-century lifestyle that was very much centered on acts of abandonment, living without moral constraint, acting on all your human impulses and excessively indulging in such desires. It painted a picture of a society that was self-indulgent, self-gratifying, self-destructive and without self-control. A picture that looks a a lot like our world today, unfortunately. And it's these very things that the Christian chooses to leave that we find most attractive when faced with potential suffering. And that makes sense because isn't it so much easier for us to choose what we're most used to when standing at a crossroads, drawn to choose the easiest path, especially when faced with uh, the potential of persecution and suffering? It's easier to get drunk after a hard day's work with your colleagues and boss rather than be left out of the main group. It's easier to listen to society's urge for you to sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend rather than be deemed a prude or a loser. It's easier to join in with the other parents in making snarky comments about that teacher behind her back than risk backlash for stopping that gossip sesh. It's easier to do all these things because this is how we once approvingly lived and would rather do it again than risk suffering, or disapproval to the unbelieving world around us. To that, Peter says, the time for that is done. That's enough. You must embrace your calling. Cease from sinning. Put an end to your old ways. The time you've spent running after the same things the world does is enough. You are chosen by God. You are his elect, so live like it. Peter is essentially saying Christ redeemed us from this world. Why would we want to go back? In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. See, as his chosen people, we must recognize that we no longer follow the ways of the world. Sensuality, worldly passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, debauchery, the old Gentile ways are done. Leaving these sins will bring on persecution, that you don't fit in with the crowd anymore. And as verse 4 says, it will confuse people, surprise them, even bring them to reject you despise you, malign you, you are the bad guy. To that, Peter appeals, embrace your calling as elect exiles. Say no to sin and therefore suffer for righteousness' sake. But know that to those who do reject you, Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. See, for the believer, in their suffering for righteousness' sake, one of our greatest temptations is to demand justice and want the other person to be called into account. And sometimes the situation calls for it, that it's the right thing to do. But for most of the time, God's will is not that we Do the calling to account, but you hand it over to the God who judges justly. There's reassurance in your faithful suffering. Nothing is forgotten. It's not swept under a rug. But those who unduly malign you will be made to face the judge one day. To the first century Christians reading Peter's letter, it was likely, actually, it was definitely uh, the slander that was coming their way had to do with past Christians' suffering and dying just like everybody else. See, for the Gentile world, the unbelieving world, to hear the gospel message that Jesus had triumphed over death, meaning believers also had victory over death, the unbelieving world would have scoffed. They made a mockery of Christians who were still dying like everyone else. I'd imagine the sort of mockery and thinking coming the Christian's way in those days was something like, oh, so you say Jesus, uh, you say Jesus, in Jesus you've escaped judgment. You say that you've been saved and you are made alive again. But we've seen a lot of you Christians suffer and die just like us. So just live like us, eat, drink, sleep around, be merry, for tomorrow you die just like us. Which is why Peter says what he does in verse 6. Peter is likely telling his Christian brothers and sisters that the gospel was not preached to your dead Christian friends in vain even though they've been persecuted and died from it and look like they've been judged like everybody else, they're alive in the spirit. Their suffering, which likely led to their deaths, was not for nothing, but they are with the Lord. His glory has been made known to them. It can seem an unusual verse in where it's placed, but I think Peter intentionally says it here to help comfort the listener to entrust God in their suffering. That the exile can take comfort in the gospel and the faithful persecuted who went before them. That if they suffered even all the way to death, that they would now be living in the Spirit, present with the Lord. So the elect exile us, we need not judge the world, even as they're unjustly, even as even though we're unjustly mocked, despised, persecuted, but instead wait for Jesus to set all things straight. And I love how Peter has us thinking about the future because as he continues, he reminds the elect exile to keep the right perspective, to live in view of something, to live in view of forever, to live in a way that embodies eternity. So imagine two different amateur soccer players. One has the dream of playing in the World Cup one day while the other one feels like he has no chance. Now compare the pair. Same age, same income, right? Same super contribution, right? How different though would their lives be? I think for the player with hopes and dreams of making it one day, his life is completely soaked in football. Training every day, reading up, uh, on it when he's not playing, plays with joy, passion, and confidence in the hope that he has. Everything he does is centered on the sport as he lives in view of one day playing in that World Cup. While well, for the other player, who only thinks about soccer maybe every other weekend, trains once a week because he has to. He has no hope of playing in the ultimate prize, so he lives just like any regular person. When somebody lives in view of something, it often means that they put all their values in it, how they do life, what they say, what they do, how they plan, what they learn. Basically, all that really matters in life are the things that one has in view of the future. Scholar Karen Job says, what one believes about the future shapes how one lives today. A belief that the future is full of hopelessness, despair, and futility becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when people live today as if that future were true. On the other hand, hope in a future that is meaningful and assured and assured produces the confidence to live each day with that future in view. Which is why Peter begins the next section with these words in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. What Peter is doing is reminding the believer, the elect exile, that this isn't your home. The world in which you live is not it. You're a sojourner. Chapter 2, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Your home is in heaven, so live in view of that. Live in view of eternity, the hope of Jesus' return, the joy of living in the full presence of God. As Chapter 3, that Christ might bring us to God. And so as Peter had been talking about the suffering that comes as a Christian, which could have felt quite discouraging for those listening, what he goes on to share would have been of great encouragement and needed to the listeners, that having a proper view of eternity will radically affect how they live and help them in their faithful suffering. That as elect exiles, we can prepare to suffer by focusing on the nearness of the end of all things. Because you see, with Jesus' death and resurrection, the end has already begun. Ever since then, we're now in the final stages of God's redemptive plan, living the last days, awaiting for the consummation of the world on Christ's return. Therefore, all believers, all of us should be thinking and wrestling every day with what to do with the time we have left, asking the question, is my life rooted in the things of the world or will I live as a visiting stranger, a resident alien? a sojourner of the world who embodies eternity, who lives in view of our future home. What I think Peter is appealing here to believers is that the elect exile, you have been assured the outcome of your life by the resurrection of Jesus, that you have an assurance of salvation and being in the family of God. So now go out and live out that assurance. Your behaviour should reflect that reality we have hope. Let's live that out. Embody eternity as it will help prepare you and encourage you in the suffering to come while here. To the faithful Christian, to you that may be sitting here who is being mocked, despised, maligned, persecuted for your, for your faith, Peter comforts, the end is near. So prepare and live in view of eternity. Don't choose sin but instead live out these things that help deliver you from sin. And what's great is Peter helpfully gives four practical ways of how we embody eternity. He says in verse 8, to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, or as author Gregory Brown has put it, have a focused prayer life. What do I mean by that? As Christians, we've all heard the importance of, of prayer countless times. It should be a regular discipline in the lives of every Christian. But Peter distinctively urges here a mind that is self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. We remember the audience that Peter was speaking to, Christians who once lived like Gentiles, whose lives were filled with excessive drinking, sex, debauchery, idolatry. So Peter is calling them to a focused mind in prayer, one that isn't dulled by such things which their old lifestyle was ingrained in. I think a good example of why Peter needed to say this was because these Christians came from a life of uncontrolled passions, excessive indulging, so it could just as easily creep into their prayer life. Prayers that centered on wanting things, desiring the superficial, prayer for more of the things that the world deemed good, while at the same token, less prayer on things which they were meant to actually embrace as Christians. And this is so true for us today. How many more times have you prayed for something that you receive that job, that house, that car, that operation, compared to praying for suffering and trial that will help grow you and bless you as an elect exile? See, I think for Christians it's easier to pray for the meal than pray for trust in God for the meal that never comes. What Peter calls for here is a focused prayer life in our suffering. One where the Christian has a right mind of praying with a biblical view, not a worldview. Remember, Peter is saying all this in the context of suffering that comes as a believer. So keep in mind scripture when you pray. Think like Christ, because in suffering, we can so easily not be in our right minds. We may be dulled by our old sinful ways and it seeps into our prayer. We may pray complacently with the mindset, well, God's going to do whatever, so who cares? We may pray without responsibility, fervor or intention. But Peter says, keep in mind Christ, have a right mind that is led by his word and pray. Writer M. Davids explains, this is not prayer based on daydreams and unreality, nor the prayer based on surprised desperation, but the prayer that calls upon and submits to God in the light of reality, seen from God's perspective, and thus obtains power and guidance in the situation, however evil the time may be. Jesus himself showed this in Matthew 26 as in one of his most trialing hours leading up to him being crucified on the cross, he had focused prayer for his suffering that was to come as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. In our times of suffering and preparing for it, we must have a focused prayer life. We embody eternity this way as we entrust our lives to the Lord in our prayers. Another practical point that Peter talks about here is that Christians love each other. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In the face of any form of suffering, it is very easy, easy for us to show discord with one another. Isn't that right? Think of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness where their trials, the difficulty of being out in the wilderness, what did it cause? A lot of conflict amongst each other as God's people. Or today, something as simple as a spouse who comes home after a really hard day at work and it affects their relationship at home with their family. Naturally, when people are stressed, anxious, doing it tough, suffering, the response to loved ones can be harsh. For the suffering Christian, this can be particularly true, to the point that even sadly Christians have uh, disassociated themselves with their churches, fellow Christians, even their faith, amidst unjust trials in life. So Peter says, above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. He lifts up love's significance by saying above all. He describes a love that persists throughout difficult with the word earnestly. He emphasises a love that doesn't keep a record of wrongs as it covers a multitude of sins. Peter isn't saying that love this is a love that overlooks grievous sins, covers it up, calls no one to account, but rather Peter is describing a love that's deeply ingrained in the community of believers. that means treating others in the same way to so promote unity with one another, as it overcomes things that breaks up and destroys relationships. Why he says this is because for the first century church, it was already very small. If Christians were if Christian relationships In the first century, were to fall apart, and their communities were destroyed because they were unloving towards one another. Believers would have nowhere to turn. The faithful sufferer would feel even more helpless, as there was nowhere to go, and the witness of the gospel in that place would likely be extinguished. So it makes sense that to a Christian going through suffering, the people they ought to be able to come to first to feel loved. Encouraged and supported is their fellow believing brothers and sisters. So, church, have a love for one another that is deep and fervent. Love even when you've been wronged by another. Love even when it's the harder choice. To embody eternity, we ought to be a people who love one another. Peter then also says that we live in view of eternity by practicing hospitality. Although it sounds like a general statement towards being hospitable to all people in general, which is a very good and godly thing to do, what Peter has in mind here is he's talking about the churches of Asia Minor and Christians opening their local communities of believers into their homes for the purposes of worship and fellowship. Essentially, Peter is talking about gospel communities. In those days, homes were where Christians would meet for local church. So Peter encouraged. Hospitality without grumbling because he knew that this would be very costly. That those who opened up their homes risked anti Christian persecution from society, risked suffering, something that some countries like China or Iraq today, Christians there are going through still. But he reminds the listener to embody eternity. Open up your homes as to welcome worship of God with your fellow exiles and do so not with grumbling hearts but with open hearts. Karen Job says, such open-heartedness towards fellow believers would allow the opportunity for hospitality beyond the official meetings of the church. If their pagan friends and families are ostracizing Christians, those distressed believers are to find a warm welcome in the homes of other members of the Christian community. In a hostile world, the church is to be a place of safety and well-being for its members, a place where common beliefs unite, more than differences divide. There is no better way to plug gospel communities than that. Thank you, Peter. In a world where we here are seen as the bad guys, where we suffer unjustly for our faith and our conviction, The need for a close community centered around the comforting word of God who opens its homes and lives to one another cannot be more needed for us sitting here today. So have a gospel community. I think of one of the women in the St. Albans gospel communities who for a while was doing it really tough at a workplace having a boss who treated her so harshly and so unjustly, yet she was doing everything that she could do to do good. And I remember the impact of her going to gospel communities in her life, going to each other's homes, a home where she could come and share, pray and be encouraged to persevere, especially in her women's discipling group that stemmed from this gospel community. It was something that she said she looked forward to every single week to meet up with her gospel community. And what a beautiful, beautiful sight that is. And it embodies eternity because it's just the glimpse of the gospel community we'll all one day share in our forever home together. And lastly, in verse 10 and 11, Peter tells his listeners that in view of eternity, we serve through our gifts. See, as people who have been chosen by God, a people who, whose grace has been made known, he has given us gifts of his grace to steward, gifts described in the New Testament passages such, such as 1 Corinthians or Ephesians. He reminds the listener believing that grace, the grace that now revealed has been revealed to you should be used to serve others. Basically, Peter is just telling a practical follow-on from his last previous points that Christians are to embody eternity. How? By loving one another, opening up your homes to one another and exercising your gifts to serve one another. That is how you embody eternity. In the midst of their unjust suffering and persecution for the gospel, these appeals from Peter are a way to encourage us as believers to keep going and not be discouraged. That these things, praying, loving, hospitality, serving are helpful in sustaining our faith and coping with the opposition that will come to us as his elect exiles. And notice as Peter closes this passage, he brings it all together by reminding the Christian that whatever they go through, for their embracing their calling, their ending of old ways, their embodying eternity, all of this is done faithfully for the sole reason of what? That everyone may exalt the Lord. Peter's appeal to do all these things that I've said today is, as verse 11 says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Notice how Peter in this passage starts off with us arming ourselves like Christ and ends with us glorifying Christ. And I think that's so fitting because in all that we've heard today, it all starts and ends with Jesus Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, embraced his calling by obeying the Father's will, that by his grace he would come down to the mess of the world in order to redeem it. In Jesus' coming down, it meant an end of old ways, that sin would no longer rule the world, but the barrier between humanity and God would be removed as Jesus took on the rejection, the suffering, the death for sinners that those who believe in him may have salvation and have eternal life. And all that Jesus did, leading up to the cross, on the cross, after the cross, Jesus embodied eternity. The whole time he had in view eternity, an eternity where his people, your brothers and sisters sitting right here with you right now, an eternity where his people will worship and be in the presence of the almighty, just Gracious, exalted, glorified King Jesus, forever. So church, be encouraged, be encouraged seated on your hill, that although we are the bad guys, although we are elect exiles, we can go forth faithfully, embracing our calling, putting an end to our old ways, embodying eternity every step of the way, so that Jesus, our Savior, may be exalted. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that although today as Christians we live in a world where we are deemed the bad guys, but that you have given us the greatest example in Jesus, that Jesus suffered for our sins, that we may have life in him. And Lord, as we embrace this calling, may we draw draw on your strength. May we look to Jesus as our example. May he help us embrace this. May we put an end to our old ways as sin is so easily creeping up in our lives, so easily the thing that we draw most to, Lord. But as we think like Jesus, we see the sin, our sin that he took upon that cross that he died for it, that we may cease from that sin. And, Lord, as we uh, leave this place, help us embody eternity, that we may have in view the life after this, that we remember that we are sojourners here, visitors here, that we may go out uh, with a focused mind in prayer and our suffering, that we'll be loving one another, that we're opening up our homes for one another, that we may serve one another, Lord. You have given us ways to embrace our calling, to embrace eternity, that in our suffering we know that we are not alone, that ultimately you are the God who, who is glorified, that you are the God who be exalted for Jesus, has done all these things for us. May glory and dominion forever and ever, amen, come to Jesus, come through Jesus, Lord. We pray this in his name.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast.